Welcome back, everyone, to the uh, OIS Retina podcast. Thank you for joining us. This is Faras Rahal. I'm a member here in Los Angeles at the Retina Vitreous Associates Medical Group. As you can see, I actually do, do still do real surgery. This is not a costume. And I'm also a general partner in Excite Ventures, which is uh, centered in New York City. I'm delighted today to have as my guest a friend. And a lot of the people that come on the broadcast are my friends. This is no exception. Anthony Wallace, who's Vice President and General Manager, U.S. Surgical at Bausch & Lomb, a position he's had for the last couple few years. We'll hear more about that. Anthony's a longtime friend from being in the business of ophthalmology for a, a long time before that. Welcome, Anthony. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for Austin. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and looking forward to our discussion. Great. I'm going to want to start by going through a little bit of your personal history. You can tell us a little bit about how you you know, came to this point in your career. You're in an important position in a very important company in our space. There's not that many ophthalmology companies, and BNL is one of the ones with a legendary name, and, and now you're there and, and have been in other companies, too. We'll hear about that. But first, your background, you have both a bachelor's and a master's degree and MBA and you did practice this I didn't know I knew you had the degrees because I you know I can read the bio but you did practice actual accounting which is your your technical skill background is that right that is correct yeah so very early on in in uh, my career in fact right out of undergrad so I've um, you know I'll start off by just saying I mean I, I feel extremely grateful for the opportunity to work in this industry and specifically in ophthalmology it, it is a true privilege to um to be working with with you and your peers and and um, and what we do every day, um, my career didn't start this way, right? I've spent the last twenty seven years in in um, in healthcare and primarily in pharmaceuticals, uh, but I did start at practice practicing accounting and I worked in corporate audit and public accounting and um, spent a few years doing that and it was a great foundation really for you know for the rest of my career, but it certainly I was missing something I was missing that connection to what I was doing that that passion. And it just so happened right around the same time, and I was, you know, I was 24 years old, and and uh, and I knew nothing, um, but I do, I did know that I was missing that connection with with my work. And um, fortunately, I have a a mentor in my life, my uncle, who is, you know, just truly someone who I hold in the in the highest level of respect, someone that I've always looked to for advice. Uh, he did work in the in the pharmaceutical and the healthcare industry. He worked in all different functional areas, including product management, and that's really. When I started talking with him, and I saw the passion that he had for what he did, and he was at the time working on pediatric vaccines, and it was, it was just really interesting. And I saw the impact that he was making and the work that he was doing. I also had a few friends that worked in the farm industry, and I and I saw how passionate they were about what they did. And I really wanted to be part of that. Um, it was something I felt like I was missing, so I made the move. I actually joined Merck and Company, and and um, I never looked back. I've had an opportunity to, to work across multiple functional areas. Um, a lot around commercials, so sales, marketing, leadership, supply chain operations. Uh, but it's been a really rewarding career, both professionally and personally. And uh, and I've never looked back. It's it's truly a great career. I still love coming to work every day and and do my part to make an impact. So it's obvious you love coming to work every day. It's the person you are. We all, everyone who knows you knows the kind of positive energy you exude. That's obvious. What, so in those early years, you went towards biomedical career volitionally. It wasn't like happenstance. You saw it as an area you wanted to pursue and and left your sort of career in accounting at that moment uh, as a choice to go into the medical space. 
I did. I, I really, I really, you know, again, being fairly young and you, you go to school for something and I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't fully understand what it would, what it would turn out to be, but and it was great experience. It just wasn't something that I was, you know, passionate about and connected to. And I, and I saw that in, in other people that were working in the industry. And I really wanted to be part of that. Well, I, I mentioned this to you before, as an aside, before I get to the next question, I, with all due respect to my friends who are in finance and study fin in college, undergrad and, and grad, I always felt the accountants were the ones who understood business more than anyone. And out, without kidding, and my father was an accountant, uh, my late father, uh, they really understand business, the mechanisms, the truth behind all the, the show that we create in business. The truth is always in the accountant's books. And um, that must help you in, in every pursuit you're doing in business, though, well, doesn't it? It's a good foundation, right? You know, part of part of the role that I, I do, and, and you know, we can talk more about that. But, you know, part of it is truly managing the business, right? And understanding your, 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 your complete P&L and being able to have a sustainable business that you can continue to invest in. And I, I've always, you know, I've always defaulted to some of those skills from very early on and being able to leverage that in, in, in other areas, as well as I, you know, I'm forever doing my mother's taxes for uh, forever <laughs> as a, as a small token of her support. And, uh, and I still do all of our own personal taxes as well. So. Well, maybe you'll get a call from my wife in April <laughs> uh, if I'm in desperate straits. I'll give you a call. Happy to help. Uh, so to to the work history, 12 years at Novartis, maybe if I'm wrong about the numbers, please correct me. The most recent of which, because it appears you had more than one stint as the VP head of U.S. ophthalmics, so very relevant to our conversation, obviously. And Novartis, of course, has a very long history in ophthalmology. You were part of that. You sounds like you would have been there during the Bayview experience. That's important to the retina audience. I don't want to bring up a sore subject, but it look, that is a highly efficacious drug. I still have patients on it, just so to be clear here. There's a it's as good at drying the macula as anything we've ever used. Uh, obviously, there were some issues, and maybe you can speak to that. What what do you take away from your time at Novartis? in total and anything specific about that experience that you take with away some lessons that might help you later? No, yeah. Th thanks for the question. I mean, look, I, I had a, a great career at Novartis and I absolutely loved every bit of experience there, um, even through the, uh, the BMU experience. But I began in 2009. I, I made the move from Merck to Novartis and it was a pretty influential discussion early on when I was considering it. I had a discussion with Vasanar Simon, who's now the CEO, and he was leading the U.S. business uh, in vaccines. And I came over to really help build that vaccine business. And, you know, he had such a great vision for public health and where we were going with this meningococcal vaccine and, and, and these, these new universal flu vaccines and cell culture flu vaccines. It was really exciting. And I wanted to be part of that. And I did make the move. And we had a we had a great run at vaccines. And then uh, then I had the chance to, to move into into acute care on the hospital side and, and really had a chance to be part of the surgical environment. And then that led me to ultimately to my ophthalmology side, uh, which was the last area that I worked in. You know, regarding the experience with, um, you know, with B of you, I, I think you mentioned it and, and, you, and you nailed it. This was such an incredible drug with incredible promise for patients, right? This, um, you know, immediately had uptake by the retina community, including yourself and others, it was working extremely well. It was drying the macula like like nothing we've ever seen before. You know, patients were going multiple months between 
um, between injections. So it was really good on the patient experience. And, uh, you know, it went, it went gangbusters, right? I mean, before we knew it, there were 30,000 patients on, on B of U. And I think when you start putting it in that size of the population, the more rare adverse events, you know, that's when you really learn about some of those. And um, with a simple, you know, thousand patients in Hawk and Harrier, you don't always, you know, you don't always have the chance to see those, you know, one in, you know, one in 10,000 type events. But we did see a clustering that got reported, um, a clustering, we disclosed all of this, a clustering of uh, retinal vasculitis events, eight events at the time. And I will tell you, I am so proud of the way that Novartis handled the situation, including all of my peers and the support that they gave me and my peers in backing up everything. Um, I think the most important part is you communicate, right? And they did that immediately. They communicated with the medical community. They used they used stage time at the Macula Society meeting to, um, to go through the eight cases. And I think what was really important is they didn't claim they knew what was going on. They, you know, we, we said, we're seeing this, these are reported cases. We haven't seen this before. And we wanna make you all aware of it. If nothing else to make you vigilant and to help you have better discussions with your patients. And in parallel, you know, we're, we've, we've you know, we compiled a committee of folks, both internal and external experts, clinicians, scientists, um, uh, you know, chemistry folks to really look at, is there, a, is there a serology issue? All of these components were put together to try to get answers as soon as possible. And I'll, and I'll tell you, that was the fastest I've seen any company move. And it was all in the name of patient safety. So I couldn't be more proud to, to be with them at the time. And, and, you know, and ultimately at the end of the day, um, I think as the work still goes on, there are patients still on the medicine. There's patients that are benefiting, as you mentioned, but it certainly is something with options in the market. It's certainly something that, you know, you have to consider closely and have that discussion with your patient. And, and so at any rate, it was, it was great experience. And again, I'm really proud the way it was handled. I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I'm happy you brought that part of it up. And obviously your transparency here is always refreshing, but the company, I, I, I'm going to reiterate what you just said as a retina doctor, uh, I was really impressed how quickly the information was disseminated, how honestly it was disseminated with a great deal of transparency. We were given all kinds of opportunities to call, ask questions, find out more. The, the information got out there. And although for some who might be listening, that seems like a no-brainer. Well, of course, there's a lot of scenarios you could have imagined could have gone differently without the, that degree of transparency for whatever reason, even if not with malintent, but poorly executed uh, dissemination of information, even with good intent, uh, could have led to a lot more problems. So yeah, I do think the company deserves a lot of credit for that. There's an awful lot of money at stake there, and uh, the temptation would be high uh, to bury your head in the sand for a while longer. I didn't perceive that for one minute, so I'm glad you brought that up. Um, let's go to your current uh, position. We said it's uh, U.S. Surgical GM and VP at Bausch, a BNL, a company well known to us. Um, first of all, that's a position not just in retina, but all of eye surgery. Is that right? That is correct. So we 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 work in the retina side. We work on the cataract side as well as refractive. So we'll concentrate mostly on the retina, but I, I, I obviously know that you're wearing multiple hats. What can you tell us about this position in, in simple terms? Like, what are your day-to-day -day activities? What, what does that job entail for you as an executive? And with what other directors or staff do you interact with on a common day-to-day -day basis or clients? 
Yeah, so we have, you know, we have four divisions at, at Bausch & Lomb, and we have the surgical division, we have a consumer division, a pharmaceutical division, and a vision care um, division of the company. And um, we we're, we work very collaboratively together, so we try to, you know, show up as, as one company, um, even though in some cases we have different HCPs that we work with, um, we, we try to be fully collaborative, fully integrated as an eye care company. Um, my responsibilities are really essentially around all aspects of the surgical business, the long-term strategy planning, the, the short-term execution, the portfolio planning, the research and development alignment. You know, there's acquisitions where we have gaps in the portfolio. We, we look to, um, to fill those gaps. There's pricing and contracting. There's either traditional sales and marketing operations supply chain. And, um, and, and I really have the privilege to work with some very talented people that lead these functional areas. And, and you know, they, they, at the end of the day, they work together. They're very focused on the patient outcomes. They're very focused on the surgeon and helping you to treat your patients. Um, but we commercialize equipment. Um, I think, you, you know, you, you're familiar with the Stellaris Elite. We, we have femtosecond lasers. We have eczema lasers. We have surgical instrumentation. We have viscoelastics. We have IOLs like Invista and, and also our, our newly acquired uh, Aptera IC8. So we really have a chance to, to, to serve a lot of customers, a lot of patients in the broad portfolio that we have. And of course, I'm ultimately accountable for delivering on the financial targets. You know, we are a public company and, and, um, and that accountability falls on me. But, but one thing I'll share with you that I'm, I'm really proud of, one thing that we, that we do is we measure our success in the number of patients that we reach. So, you know, you have all these financial targets and you have EBITDA and everything else, but, but truly what makes an impact with all of us is the number of patients we reached. Last year alone, we reached over two, 2 million patients in the US with some, some sort of BNL product in the surgical setting. Mm -hmm. And our goal over the next five years, as we build our strategy, our goal is to double that number by 2027. So to reach more than 4 million patients with a BNL product in surgery, by the end of 2027. So it's an aspirational goal. We believe it's the right North Star to uh, to achieve and, and we're very focused on doing that. That's great to hear. As an aside to that, is that a common parlance among, I know you don't work at all the companies, but in your own personal experience, do you do you find that to be a unique measure that you're using? And I, I maybe it's formalized, maybe it's not, but in any way, shape or form, that seems like a very, good number to think about when you're a, a medical company is how many patients are being impacted positively here. Is that commonplace to have that that dialogue in a company of, of this magnitude? I think there's some companies that they do have that North Star or some level of patient experience. Um, you know, the, the one thing I've learned through the years is that the financial targets, again, the EBITDA, you're looking at your core operating margin, your revenue, your gross to nets, all of these things are important, right? You have to run a healthy business so you can continue to serve patients. But at the end of the day, you know, truly motivated people don't get behind numbers, right? They get behind what they're doing and they see the value in what they're doing. They're passionate about what they're doing. And I think everyone can align to, we need to reach more patients. We believe in what we sell and what we have. And in doing so, we want more patients to benefit from that. So I, I, I have a hope that many companies have that kind of North Star in mind, but um, I've seen it in some areas, but 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 not in all. So I think you're you're accurate. I I caught in your description um, that one of the duties and responsibilities was, uh, and I'll use my my terminology here so as not to misquote you, essentially identify gap areas in surgical tools or 
areas of need. Um, how do you how do you approach that part formally? That intrigues me as a surgeon. Obviously, there's some interplay with us, and that's great. What how how do you how do you formalize that if it's formalized? You know, there there are two two ways we really go about it. One is you know you have your internal pipeline of products that you've been working on in your research and development area. And we track those, you know, we have weekly meetings on those. So we, we truly know where they're progressing along in the pipeline. So in some cases we may say, you know, things aren't looking like they're gonna make it or things are short in a specific area. And we may need to go out and try to, um, to acquire something maybe in an early phase or, or maybe even closer to the commercial life, right? An example of one of those things we just recently did was the, was the uh, acquisition of AccuFocus. Um, and it was an area of, of a premium lens that we were very interested in pursuing. And we saw a lot of benefit for the patient. So we, we do have a pipeline, but that is something really unique. And we thought it would be a great option. But in general, you know, and, and then the other way too, I should mention is, you know, you also get, um, as one of the strategic companies, you also get uh, external companies, startups and, and other areas. You have bankers and stuff that come to you and, and they bring things forward. And then you make a decision if it's something that you want to look into and do due diligence, or it's something that you feel like maybe you have covered in your pipeline. So a little, a little bit of is, is companies coming to you and a little bit as a proactive management of the, of the, uh, of the portfolio. Or your friend Faraz puts on his VC hat and he shows you something at some point. I'm sure you're, you're deep into the best of the best for us. <laughs> Thanks, man. Um, so we're focusing on the retina here today. You obviously handle a lot. You just said IOLs, uh, anterior segment surgery. Uh, what do you what do you find unique, if anything, in the in the retina space? What what is different about that than the others? If there's a difference, well, retina. I, I'm not just going to say this because I'm speaking with you. Retina is a very special place. Even within ophthalmology, retina is a very special place. And it really hit me, you know, years ago when I I started it. I started in retina. And um, I, I managed a large sales team. And in speaking with some of them initially, it was my first or second week on the job. I had, you know, one-on-ones and I was hearing about their careers and where they wanted to go and their work experience and so forth. And several of them made the comment to me. They said they would rather forego a promotion and stay in retina than <laughs> to leave retina and go to another therapeutic area for a promotion. And I, and I found that I found that very interesting, right? Because most people, as they're going through their career, Sure. They, you know, they're willing to switch therapeutic areas and get different functional experience. But, you know, these folks were, were serious. I just found that extremely interesting. And it didn't take me long, you know, maybe a few more weeks after to realize why they said that. But it was just, it was something really interesting. And I, and I tried to, you know, I have this discussion quite a bit. And I try to explain to people why retina is so special. I think it boils down to three things. I think one is, it's a very, you know, you're a very small, tight-knit community. There's less, what, less than 3,000 retina yeah. surgeons in the US, yeah. you're like family, right? You know each other, um, you're, you're all extremely bright. It's, it's intellectually stimulating. Um, I think there's just that family feeling and, and when you're in, you're in, right? There, you know, it's, you're, you're one of the family. I think the second thing is there's an incredibly strong willingness to partner with industry. And, and, and that's not common in other therapeutic areas. And I think what you get out of it is you get a great partnership and you're both focused on bringing innovation for patients. And I think the more heads and the more resources align there, the better. And I, and I think, again, that's, that's very unique within retina. And then the final part is, you know, in dealing with, with, with retina, right, these are site-threatening conditions, right? These are, 
areas where a patient can lose sight or, or, or not lose sight. Um, and, and I think that type of innovation in this space is incredibly meaningful. So it really motivates the people that work in the space. So I, I think those three things, um, I'm sure there are plenty of others and, and, and some may even have some, some great ones that I didn't think of, but I think they're the three things that boil it down to me as why retina is so special. Yeah, I, to I totally agree with all three premises that uh, the smallness matters. I've heard this from people in industry before, friends of mine like yourself who have been in cardiology, ENT, you know, neurosurgery, et cetera, who've come back to retina and, and missed it and liked it. And I think the smallness matters. And I think the last point, I agree with all, I agree with all of them. Uh, a corollary is this collaborative spirit um, is there for sure with industry. I, you see it at the meetings that people are friendly, they go out to dinner together. And, and there's a, I think retina doctors are prone to be innovative as a group, as an individual, <laughs> that most of them are really, even the guys, uh, just, you know, small private practices, they're very innovative group surgically and are willing to adopt new therapies quickly. We saw this throughout the anti-VEGF era, era, you know, when, Avastin first got put in the eye, you know, in 2004 or five, whenever that was, it was literally in every clinic in the world within a year. Like the, it moves quickly and that's exciting on your side and on our side. And it, it's good for patients ultimately. Yeah, I fully agree. And, and I'll tell you for us, I didn't mention this earlier, but I've worked in 13 different therapeutic areas in, in my career. Hmm. And I can honestly say I have not found one like ophthalmology and then specifically with an ophthalmology like retina. It's a really special place and it's a privilege to work here. That's great to hear. Thank you. Let, you mentioned acquisition. You mentioned AccuFocus. I wanted to talk to you specifically about one of your acquisitions from years ago that I use all the time is the Synergetics. I didn't know it dated back to 2015. I got that from you, but I, I know... The people at Synergetics back in the day before they became merged with your company, how do you feel about that fit? How has that acquisition gone seven years later? Has that panned out exactly the way you wanted it and, and the company wanted it? And what's the feedback from the Synergetics people even in, in post seven years of marriage? Yeah, so the, synergetic, um, the Synergetics acquisition was, was a perfect fit. And if you think about it, I mean, this is a company that we had, a, you know, we had a close relationship even before that. Uh, but this is a company that has a great portfolio. They have phenomenal instrumentation. They have strong innovation. They have world-class manufacturing. They're even located in St. Louis, not too far from, from our other uh, marketing and, and operations and manufacturing areas. But, but in general, I think over the years, B&L has had great equipment, right? But they were missing some of the pieces and the parts. And I think the acquisition of, of Synergetics, it was, a, it was a fit like a perfect love. And it's still today, you know, continues to innovate and continues to bring things to market. It's just a great partnership. And um, I, I haven't talked to too many of their folks. I did when I, when I first joined, I did spend some time talking to the folks on the floor that were, you know, staring through oculars for eight hours a day and, and making equipment and instruments. And I was really amazed at their level of engagement um, and their level of, you know, and I asked them, I said, why are you excited about coming to work every day? And they're, they're, they said, we're making equipment that saves patient sight. And, yeah. and, you know, when you talk about someone on the shop floor that's coming in hourly, right, working, staring through oculars, making an instrument, 
that's that's truly inspiring to me, right, at all levels. So I think they are very passionate about what they do. I think they like the acquisition, being part of a bigger company, and it's been a perfect fit. They've been super innovative throughout the years, for sure. And I've been using their tools for decades now, dating back well before that acquisition period. But I do think when when companies, bigger companies, acquire these elite instrument smaller companies it everyone gets better i think the same thing you know occurred with the forceps uh from grease hopper when alcon partnered with grease hopper on that the grease hopper was already phenomenally good at building these <laughs> these great forceps and so forth and then it just got i guess i don't know if better is the right word but accessible to so many more people through all the great uh, avenues that the bigger companies have to get it in the hands of the doctors and out to patients. So it's worked for us uh, with regard to Synergetics and BNL, and there, it's in every operating room in the country. There's no doubt about it. Um, what about some of your stuff? I'm going to give you a chance to talk about your your guys' devices, and we're in Retina. So the Stellaris Elite's been around a while now. You guys have been improving upon it rapidly in recent years. Um what do you consider uh, the, some of the unique features? What are the feedback you're getting? What are areas you're still trying to work on? Yeah, no, thanks for the question. And, and you know, I, I, you really have some great options out there. I mean, that's the benefit of, of this space with the innovation is you do have great things. A lot of times physician preference, surgeon preference, you know, really draws what, what equipment they want to use. And specifically about Stellaris, I mean, some of, some of the really good feedback that we get is, one is the obvious, right? It's it's one piece of equipment that has both retina and cataract capabilities. So where you have some space issues, you know, some of the smaller surgery centers or even outlay of capital um, kind of challenges, you have you, you get the best of both worlds. So you have one piece of equipment that can do both. It's upgradable, so you know it stands the test of time. It's and it's extremely durable. Some of the other feedback that we get that's that's uh, you know that's really positive is the. We use, a, we use a little bit different. We use vacuum-based fake emulsification platform um, so and, and adaptive fluidics. And, and essentially what this does is it combines precise aspiration control with that predictive and, and proactive infusion management and ultimately creates that stable chamber, right? That, that stable surgical environment. On the cataract side, I think, you know, we, we, we refer to this, the attuned energy management system, and it, and it uses really efficient emulsification um, and it complements the adaptive fluidics and, and really gives you very low energy when you're inside that, that capsular bag. And that lens removal becomes, you know, it becomes much more stable. And then, and then the other part I'll just say is, you know, on the retina side, we, we try to have a lot of offerings for you and your peers, right? So we offer a, a variety of bit cutters and a portfolio of high-performing laser probes, uh, numerous endo-illuminators and chandeliers and really try to build around the portfolio to give you options. Yeah, the, a lot of options matter. It's such, <laughs> we're such a finicky bunch and you're right. Everybody has their own little preferences and there's so many good tools, but they're constantly improving. I've, I've been at this a long time and the, the quality of retinal surgical tools today compared to 20 years ago, never mind 25, is insane. The tools are so much better and I try to impress that upon my fellows. I think they probably ignore those comments like, well, whatever, dinosaur, you know, <laughs> what are you comparing to the stagecoach era? But uh, you know this because you've been in the business a while. The tools are just so much greater now. There's a couple of unique features 
of the Stellaris, and I'm not as familiar with these. That's why I want to know about. But well, one I am familiar with, but I'm not as familiar with the hypersonic vitrectomy, which I think it's called Vitesse. Briefly, what can you tell us about that? What's the goal there? Uh, using ultrasound, obviously, to to apply to vitreoretinal surgery. Yeah. So the, the promise of hypersonic vitrectomy is is really three. You know, it's it's removal of uh, vitreous re removal of um, silicone oil, removal of lens fragments in one device. So you limit the number of, of, of instruments used in a procedure and the, and the number of instrument exchanges. There's another uh, side benefit too. The test doesn't use compressed nitrogen. So the uh, portability of, of being able to use it more widely outside of the traditional surgery centers, you know, could be a benefit down the road, but essentially it's, it's really, you know, being more efficient. And what, what your peers are telling us um, for, from Vitesse is that it performs extremely well in core vitreous, uh, silicone oil removal, and, and lens fragments. But some of the areas we continue to work on and develop, and this is a work in progress, right? But some of the areas we, we're working on is that removal of the dense fibrotic um, vitreous found on the periphery, as well as uh, membrane removal. So we, mm -hmm. we do have a revised version that has... Um, uh, that has uh, a new port design as well as a, a, a different stroke length. And we're working very closely with a small group of your peers to gain experience and feedback on that technology. We're just trying to, to build it to maximal performance. You know, with Vitesse, it's, it's, it's not about revenue. It's, it's about, you know, learning, learning and innovating and bringing incremental benefit to something that, you know, maybe doesn't exist today. And we're willing to invest the time and the resources to really get it right. So that's, that's where we are with Vitesse. Well, that's why it's important that the big companies continue to exist the way they do. You've, a very small company has almost, it's almost impossible to invest resources, capital, and time into something that can't be revenue generating for a long time necessarily because they just don't have the, the longevity of resources for that degree of longevity. So good for you, you're doing it. I've I've always thought ultrasound would have more, could have more of a role in vitreoretinal surgery. They obviously revolutionized cataract surgery with ultrasound, and there's no reason to think that that physical force, that technology, can't be applied in the vitreous. I'm excited to see where you where you guys go with that. And I've talked to some of the experts on it in the past. The science of it it eludes me a little bit, but I get the concept. What about the biblade? What what is that exactly? What can you tell our listeners about what the biblade is? Yeah, so this is a big advancement as well, right? In, in cutting vitreous, um, so the, the the dual biblades were 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 fairly advanced, as you know, they're two cuts per cycle, so they cut um, both edges of the blade up and down. Um, the innovation is is really incredible. Our Stellaris platform uses the fifteen thousand cuts per minute. Um, and we do have it available. We have we have three three ranges of it. We have 23, 25, and 27 gauge. And we're now testing the 25,000 cuts per minute. And we're hearing really positive feedback on it. So we're hopeful to bring more information to that uh, pretty soon. And this is part of the Stellaris Elite Unit now, or is this something for later? So the, the, the 15,000 cuts per minute in, in, in 23, 25, and 27, that's all part of the Stellaris yeah. right now. And you can also get Vitesse. Vitesse is available in 23 and 25 gauge. Um, they are different packs, so but they're both available to use with Stellaris now. Okay, cool. And the 25,000, that's a in the research protocol right now. 
Yeah, it's being tested right now. Um, and, you know, the goal and one of the beauties going back to Stellaris is it's upgradable. So as we, you know, as we as we are able to get, you know, new technology out to market, you don't have to swap out your machine. The machine has a lot of uh, a lot of years ahead of it. And we continue to put new technology in there. But we'll, we'll keep you posted on it. It's being tested now. And I saw it in action myself uh, just just about a month ago. And it was really impressive. Hopefully not inside your eye, but as an observer. Not, not my eye, but but uh, <laughs> a pig's eye was uh, was, okay. uh, was was very uh, very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So let's talk a little bit about the future for you, for the business, for the field. Really, more than anything, you've been in the business a long time, and I I'm always intrigued to hear. Look, I, even somebody who just started in the field, I'm intrigued by their future opinion. But somebody who's been around ophthalmology as long as as you have been, and in different roles. I'm interested to see where you think we're going. Where, where does ophthalmology go in the next three to five years or even beyond five to 10 years? Uh, specifically, and although not limited to where does AI come in and how is that going to help us and and some of these other newer technologies? Yeah, well, we, we've always been and will continue to be focused on driving innovation in, in, in technology and instrumentation. So, you know, tools, light pipes, color coding, um, but they're 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 incremental steps forward, and I and I think that will continue. So you mentioned, you know, some of your residents. They they you tell them stories about how instruments you. I think you know they'll be telling the same stories five yeah. and ten years from now. But we really believe the next frontier is about driving efficiencies and improving patient outcomes, and and that is you know helping you be more productive, your time in the eye, uh, helping you spend less time in the vitreous. Um, this could mean reducing instrument exchanges, as we've talked about. It could even mean, you know, managing surgery in maybe an office-based setting. But we're looking at ways that we can support that and innovate. But in addition to the efficiencies and the outcomes, right, I don't think we can ignore some of the macro trends that healthcare policy and access are, are, are coming our way, right? And I truly believe that, that all three of these can coexist. In fact, I think they can be accelerated. That's efficiency, outcomes, and, and access. And it can be really, it could even be accelerated by AI to the second part of your question. And, and an example of that is, you know, we've, we've been collecting data in our Stellaris platform. It's cloud-based data. So every machine has a, an LTE chip in it and it records all of the information of the surgery, right? We've been doing that since 2018. And one of the areas that, that your peers, you know, love about it is you can go on any other machine and we can download your settings, you know, anywhere else in the world. So there's, you know, there's some really cool technology there, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. Being able to have, you know, information on surgical procedures, what works well in certain patients, what doesn't work well, having some times and outcomes based on instrumentation and tools, all of this stuff will help us make better decisions over time. It'll help us bring better innovation to you and it could help you potentially have better outcomes with patients. And I think payers are willing to pay for that, right? I mean, right now, it's a one size fits all. And I think payers continue to challenge reimbursement. But if the cost benefit ratio is there and there's data and AI to support, you know, certain patient types for certain procedures or on the pharmaceutical side, certain medications, I think the payers are willing to pay. Um, they'll reward better outcomes. I think patients get a better out, you know, get better outcomes. You, you become more efficient in your processes. And ultimately it saves the healthcare system money. I think it's a win-win. You you touched on a couple of things in there. I want to explore a little bit more. Uh, one that is particularly of interest to me, um, 
regarding the office-based surgery, and I'm I'm not asking either of us to look in the crystal ball, but some 20 plus years ago, uh, your friend and mine, Paul Glebe, uh, and I helped uh, put together an OR in Central California with one of the first or the early MIVS 25 gauge sutureless surgery. It was a big deal. This was very early in the 2000s, so probably right around 20, 21 years ago. And I thought it was amazing and incredible that this could be done. Now it's, you know, standard operating procedure. You know, none of the young people have any idea that you ever had to suture a wound or whatever. Uh, but at that time, uh, Dr. Dewan, Eugene Dewan, and, and, and my good friend, Mark Humayan, I think they had some notion about that being ultimately being able to translate into office-based vitrectomy. And I was kind of excited by that then and still I think I have interest in it as a surgeon now, but it hasn't really gone there yet. What are your thoughts on this? You mentioned it briefly. Is this just not doable? Is it not a reality because of regulatory issues? Um, or is it a reality because the finances will drive it? What do you, what do you think? Well, I, I think it may take a while, but I think it's coming. And, and currently about, what, about two and a half percent of all cataract surgeries are done in the office space setting, right? So we know at least on the on the anterior side, we know that it can be done, and I think the uptake will, will slowly grow. We're not seeing this yet in retina, as as you mentioned, but um, you know there was a push over the last year to have reimbursement consistent with with surgery center reimbursement, and unfortunately that that legislation didn't pass. But I do think over time it, it will, and I think there's two main reasons that that it will and it, and it should pass um, to move in this direction. First. I, I have this belief that it's it's just it's more convenient and it provides a better patient experience. So, you know, when you think about what 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 a patient's going through, their emotional state as they you know been told they have to have the surgery, they're very comfortable coming to your office, right? They know you, they know your staff, they know where to park, they know how to get there, they know the traffic patterns, and and you know there, there's there's just a lot of comfort in in you and 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 your staff and and the surroundings. Um, and, and for a time frame where there's a lot of discomfort in their understanding, they, they sometimes need that. And I think, I think a, a more comfortable patient potentially could even lead to better patient outcomes. So I think, I think there's, a, there's a level there that's around the patient experience that's important to consider. I think the second part is around reimbursement. And I think you touched on this. As this continues to be a challenge, and I think we all believe that reimbursement for Medicare continues to go down, right, not up. I think we need to find ways to be more efficient and doing these procedures in the hospitals is, is expensive. Doing them in surgery centers is, is also expensive. If there's an, if there's an ability to do this in the office more efficiently. And I think about, you know, you, let's say you have surgery in the morning and then you got to drive, you got to sit in traffic. You got to get back to your office for afternoon clinic. If you could really, you know, minimize that downtime and be able to be more efficient in your office, it'll, it'll, make you better. You can see more patients, right? You can actually be more effective. You don't have that drive time. You don't have all the extra distraction. And I think, you know, eventually those efficiencies will, um, will come to fruition. And of course, you know, you need the right legislation to, to pass. You need the right equipment in the office space procedures, but I do think it'll, it'll take some time, but I, I do see it coming. I do too. And everything you said about efficiency for the doctor and quality care and comfort both psychological and otherwise for the patient are spot on. There's no question that that's a very stressful day or two days uh, for the patient. And if it were to be done in my office where they've come already eight times and exactly as you said, and 
Plus, the, the, uh, the delivery of healthcare just has to get more efficient anyway. And if you have somebody who could be injecting many eyes and doing two more vitrectomies during that two-hour span between getting to the office and plugging in and changing into scrubs, et cetera, and that's, that's a very that's a big gain for the health system. And all these are people who can provide a lot of care to a lot of people. And we need to spend their time doing that. I, I agree. I think it will come. I don't see why it wouldn't. You, uh, the, the last part of this is the healthcare policy part. It relates a little bit to the reimbursement question we just talked about, maybe other regulatory matters. Uh, I'd be interested in your concepts about that. And specifically recently with the Inflation Reduction Act, does this how does this, and I, I'm sure there's a lot of answers to this question, but briefly, how does this impact us in the near and long term in terms of drug and product development and or these, these growing efficiencies like office-based surgery, for example? Yeah. Well, there's a lot to unpack in that question. And yeah, that I know. Could be an entire day. But um, let me start off with this. There's there's a, so many things I'm proud of in this industry, and then there's, there's a few things I'm I'm not proud of, right? And one is where the healthcare landscape has gone. We've we've essentially created this high cost, low access environment, and it just unfortunately doesn't benefit the patient well. But I think we have to understand kind of some of the recent policy, right? And and so I think we start with the Affordable Care Act, right? So you look at some of the and and by the way, there were some great benefits of the Affordable Care Act, right? Including the removal of pre-existing conditions where you had coverage denial. So I, I think there was some great progress made there, but unfortunately there were some unintended consequences of, of those of, of some of that policy. One was the, uh, the Medicaid rebate went from 15.1 to 23.1%. The 340B contract pharmacies went out of control, right? Essentially it's kind of Medicaid pricing for all. I mean, if you look at your Medicaid population in a therapeutic area, you know, it's usually single digits, high single digits. It's four to five times that when you look at your segment of business on the 340B side. So there's something wrong there. It's completely out of whack. And then the rebates, including the drug user fee, continue to go up. So what happened is, you know, you saw, for example, pre-ACA, you saw a dollar of, of revenue for, for, a, for a drug it is now post-ACA is like 80 cents or 75 cents. So, you know, there's one of two ways to handle that. One, one way is you reset expectations. Not many business leaders keep all their limbs intact when you do that. So the <laughs> other way is that you, um, you raise price. And I think what we've seen is significant price increases just to keep up with the pace of some of these policy impacts. And unfortunately, most of it is going to intermediaries and not to the patient. I think it'd be, all of us would be perfectly fine if this was being truly passed on to the patient but it's not. So then you fast forward to the, we, we refer to it as the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act. And again, I think I'll start off with the way I did with ACA. There's a lot of really good things in Inflation Reduction Act. One of them, for example, is, you know, is your, um, is your insulins, right? Your cap on insulin. So I, I do think, you know, you're going to have more patient compliance, better long-term outcomes if patients can afford their insulin. So I think that's a great option. But one of the one of the unintended consequences, I think, on the, you know, and there's nine steps to, you know, pharma pricing on there. One of them is the duration of which when Medicare, Medicare is going to start negotiating on drug pricing. And that drug pricing occurs, that negotiation occurs at year nine. So they're starting off with, you know, a handful of drugs that will eventually go to another 15 and then 40. And eventually, I, I'm assuming that all drugs will be part of the negotiations. But 
usually you had a full patent life of a product to, you know, to really return your lifetime, you know, kind of investment on that product. A general, a general patent is about uh, 20, about 20 years. And when you remove all your research and development and FDA trials, you get about 13 years to make back your, your value on the drug, all the money that you put in development and research and marketing and getting it going. So that 13 years essentially shrinks to nine. And you may say, okay, 30% fewer years, um, we're splitting hairs. But all of those 13 years are not created equal. So your first five years, you're really building the brand and you're getting it up to speed, you know, you're testing it. So you're not realizing the true value. It's really the last five years of the life cycle that you're recognizing the full value. You don't really reach peak sales until the end of the, of the, uh, of the patent life. So I, mean, I guess what I'm getting at is what that means is now manufacturers have to make up that amount of lifetime value in nine years instead of 13. They can't take price increases more than inflation. So what they're gonna do is they're gonna launch drugs at very high prices. So I think one of the unintended consequences is you're gonna to continue to see this high price, low access. Now, I do think there's hope. There's a, you know, there's a, there's a I won't call it a loophole, but there's a part of the program that's around you know, it's around um, orphan drugs and, and rare diseases and, and personalized medicine falls within that category. So I think where you're gonna to start to see a lot of the innovation in the future is in those smaller populations, personalized medicine. So I think innovation is gonna grow. I think one of the good things is companies are gonna be forced now to not bring the, you know, the fifth eyedrop to market that does the same thing as the others. It's just dosed one less time a day or the me too drugs. I think, I think they'll quickly fade away. And I think what you'll get is real innovation. I just worry about the pricing that it's gonna be brought to market based on what they're working with now. And, and you know, money's very expensive nowadays, right? I mean, it's, it's um, you know, if you think about like what it, what it costs to secure unsecured money or to get funding startup money, you don't get many shots on goal anymore. And, and I, you know, as a former hockey player, you skate to where the puck is going to be, right? I always bought into the Wayne Gretzky philosophy, not where the puck's going. I don't, you don't chase it. You, you skate where it's going to be. And, and I think where the puck is going to be, it's going to be in that very differentiated space with personalized medic medicine, surgical procedures driven by AI. And I do think it will lead to great patient outcomes, but it's going to be painful and it's going to be bumpy, but uh, I do think we'll get there. That's brilliant. It, it's very complicated. And there's very few of us, most myself included, even in healthcare, who don't understand so many of the nuance there with healthcare policy and its direct and indirect and intended or unintended consequences. It Cynically, I have to wonder how much of the public can be expected to understand this and thus, and this is rhetorical, I don't want to put you in hot water here, and thus our congressional leadership, I, how, how much can they really understand from thousands of pages that obviously someone like you can understand, but I think there are very few people, and I worry about that a little bit, but I, I don't want to take us down a political rabbit hole here and get you in any, or myself in any trouble. <laughs> Final question, you, you obviously bring a lot of experience to the table here. You just talked to us about healthcare policy, you understand surgery, you understand pharma and pharma marketing and pharma development. What about you? You've had a very successful career already times two or three. What's left for you? What's next? What other things would you want to do with the remainder of your career with whatever you feel like you want to share? Sure. Well, you know, I, I think you can tell by my passion, but I fell in love with ophthalmology. So I would be 
thrilled to spend the rest of my career working in ophthalmology. And, and I'm grateful to have joined Bausch & Lomb at such an exciting time, right? The, this year marks our company's 170th year anniversary. And, and, and it's just a really special time. It's got an incredible history of innovation. It's the, it's a, you know, we're now a fully integrated eye care company. So we all speak the same language. We're not diversified in other areas. Um, you know, we, we, we focus on the eye. Um, we focus again in surgical, pharmaceutical, consumer and vision care. And we all work together for the common purpose of helping patients see better to live better. We also have a new CEO. Um, so Brent Saunders just, uh, you know, just took the helm and we are thrilled. Um, he has such an impressive track record as well as a, a history and a passion for the company. So I think we're really in a great spot. Um, but for me personally, you know, with a lot of pharma experience and now, and now um, you know, gaining that surgical experience, I think it makes me a better leader. And I mentioned earlier about our, 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 our mission of doubling the number of patients we reach in the next five years. So I'm highly focused on making sure we're aligned for that and making sure we have the right assets and the right support for you to help our patients see better, live better. So I'm, I'm thrilled to be here and, uh, and hope to continue down this journey. Good. We hope you stick around a while too. Uh, Anthony Wallace, VP and General Manager, U.S. Surgical, Bausch and & Lomb, and my friend, an overall hell of a nice guy. Thank you for coming on. That was really, really uh, stimulating. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for the opportunity for us. Great to, great to be here.